Okay, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, welcome to Free Association. This is another kind of video sharing show. Uh, I'm doing it live so that somebody might come in and have a chat. Uh, but I found a, a piece that Brett Weinstein's done with uh, Pete, Dr. Peter McCulloch. Uh, it was posted yesterday, so it must have been done within the last few days. Um, and it's worth playing part of it. I've gonna. I'm about twenty. I'm about half an hour into it. What I'm gonna do is start it from about ten minutes because it. So it's called the COVID: the rope, the path not taken. An interview with Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, Brett Weinstein's hosting it on the dark horse and. It's from about 20 minutes in, and I'll play it until somebody comes in to the, the studio and wants to have a chat. Almost anything to help everybody get through it. I'm willing to take a vaccine uh, to help everybody get through it, but people aren't willing to sacrifice their lives for this. And that's what they're being asked for. They're being asked to say, listen, take a vaccine, and even though it's rare, you could lose your life. And then people are saying, well, how rare is rare? And I can just tell you the mortality rate by all expert analyses is unacceptably high. We're at 18,000 people in the uh, CDC U.S. Bears system. About half of those are domestic Americans uh, that have died with the vaccine. Uh, there is very good work done with the CMS data suggesting the underreporting factor on this is about five. So if you take 9,000 times five, we currently are at some number that is, you know, 45,000, 50,000, and that's conservative. It could be greater than that. Um, that's underreporting, by the way, via uh, projections from CMS where we know someone's died. But you can imagine that um, the underreporting of people uh, who, uh, you know, there's commotion at the time of death. I've seen this in my circles. And unless somebody retrieves the vaccine cards and sits down at the VAR system and starts to make an entry, or unless somebody's on the rolls of CMS, uh, it, it may not actually be recorded. So we have it. Yeah, we have a situation where um, there is this now cavalier type of um, uh, situation with respect to death. And you ask the question, who's making the decision on the mandates? Do they care? whether or not there'll be some deaths among their employee population. Do they care if there's going to be some deaths in the student population? Does anybody really care? And we're not seeing any care or concern among those who are making the decision on vaccine mandates. And I think that's what's uh, frustrating. I mean, you know, we, we have we, we have mandates, by the way, for college kids to take the meningococcal vaccine. You've never seen college protests or lawsuits over the meningococcal vaccine. I'm a doctor. We take hepatitis B vaccine and flu vaccine every year. You don't see us outside protesting these vaccines, but you'll see massive protests. People are walking away from their jobs because they know they could die with the vaccine. Once the word it got out that people could die after the vaccine. In fact, deaths were occurring in large numbers. That was by mid-April, Brett. You know, rates of, the, of vaccination in the United States plummeted in mid-April. They absolutely plummeted. Uh, the word got out. Uh, it doesn't matter what was on Twitter or on major media. People were talking to one another. Everyone knew. And then we saw a degree of really kind of gross, distorted incentives. You know, the vaccines are purely research. Doctors cannot promote them. Uh, doctors can't um, can't say 
doctors need to be completely neutral on the vaccines, as well as the hospitals and anybody in a position of authority because they're investigational. If I would have promoted the vaccines, I would have violated the Nuremberg Code, which is a principle of bioethics. And I tell you, I'm a researcher, Brett. If I told my patients, listen, you have to be in my diabetes research study, I, and I forced them into it through using my pressure and coercive tactics, or if my hospital did that to my two patients and forced them into research for diabetes, for instance, uh, you know, we would be sanctioned. We'd be put up before all kinds of ethics board and be sanctioned. So, so good doctors never promoted the vaccine. They just could actually try to provide fair, balanced information. That's the only thing that good doctors, good health systems, good health professionals could do. Now we have the situation where there's the non-fatal syndromes, myocarditis. You mentioned that where the FDA agrees that the vaccines can cause myocarditis. They agreed in June based on a universe of 600 cases, 200 cases that were reviewed. It was clear it was in younger children. Uh, it was serious. 90% required hospitalization. And um, uh, in, in that, uh, uh, in fact, they had uh, syndromes, chest pain, signs and symptoms of heart failures, markedly elevated cardiac troponins, a higher that we see in a heart attack, far greater than we ever see with minimal troponin elevations with COVID patients in the ICU. And, uh, and, and these children required observations, some about a quarter in the FDA review already had some incipient heart failure. They had abnormal echocardiograms, I infer left ventricular dysfunction. They needed actually drugs to try to prevent the development of heart failure or active treatment of heart failure. We had in the New England Journal of Medicine this summer, we had a fatal case reported. Now we've had a fatal case from Korea. And then to go fast forward, from 200 cases that the FDA and CDC agreed on in June to 11,000 cases in VAERS. And I can tell you, these are the ones that are certified. I've actually reported myocarditis cases as a doctor in VAERS. And you get called by the CDC and the CDC officer, so you go down, you go over all the reports, you go over all the lab reports. Uh, and, and, and there's an agreement that in fact, the vaccine caused myocarditis. Tracy Hogue reported from UC Davis now thousands of cases using VAERS and VSAFE ages 12 to 17, explosive myocarditis uh, after the second shot of messenger RNA vaccine, boys way more than girls. And in fact, Tracy's estimates are that the, um, the real rate of myocarditis is at least 50% greater than what the CDC ever projected. She still found 86% required hospitalization. And the most shocking thing of the Hogue analysis was that a child age, age 12 to 17 is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis than taking your chances with COVID and ever getting hospitalized with COVID. And the Hogue analysis, as well as a parallel analysis by Ron Kostoff looking at death, which is even more important, death after the vaccine at any age group is more likely than actually taking your chances with COVID-19 and dying of COVID. And the reason why that's important is what's called determinism. When one takes the vaccine, it's a 100% chance they're exposed to the, to the fatal uh, exposure or the injurious exposure. If one takes their chances with COVID-19, it's not 100% they're going to get the illness. Matter of fact, many patients dodge COVID-19. Many are already have already had it, so they're naturally immune. They can't they can't be injured again with getting the respiratory illness. So you can see how this wager is levered. Both of those analyses were presented by external reviewers to the FDA at the meetings, the, the adolescent and childhood meetings in September and October, and they weren't disputed. So this is. This is really extraordinary. These analyses, now no one is disputing these analyses. It's a better proposition 
to defer on the vaccine and then manage COVID if it comes up. It's a better proposition if you do it blind. You have described the importance of stratifying by age, but there's also stratifying by other risk factors. And if you're looking at a healthy child, the point is they have almost no risk. Uh, it's not that they can't contract COVID, but the likelihood that it's going to hobble them in any permanent way is effectively zero. So we can stratify this such that we can just take a large group of people, people to whom we owe our, uh, our deepest commitment to protect them, and just simply eliminate them from the experiment. And yet we are not doing it, which I find, um, I'm looking for a synonym for ghastly, and I can't quite find one. Um, but let me ask you this. Uh, I know a bit about um, things like heart damage from work I did many years ago on uh, the dynamics of uh, telomeres in various tissues in the body. When someone tells me that young people have had uh, serious damage to the heart, but that they recover from it, my first thought is they may recover from it in the short term, but it is not that they have not been robbed of longevity. Is that a fair statement as a doctor? Does it strike you that patients, young patients who have had myocarditis but leave the hospital are going to uh, have, uh, if we were to treat them as a group statistically, are they going to have normal lifespans or are they likely to be vulnerable um, to other phenomena as they get older? Well, let's look at this. Um, I've recently been asked to lecture on myocarditis. I'm a cardiologist. I practice both internal medicine and adult cardiology. And so um, I want to quote a paper by Arola and colleagues from Finland. Now, this is uh, several years ago before COVID, but it's in this uh, childhood group that you mentioned all the way up through uh, adolescence. And the rate of, and Finland had everybody. Uh, they had everybody who develops myocarditis. The background rate is four cases per one million per year. And in the United States, we roughly have half of the population below age 50. So we have 160 million people below age 50 in the United States. In the analysis from VAERS by Rose and myself, and I know you featured this on a prior uh, 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 broadcast, that we showed that the myocarditis, by the way, after the vaccines is a skewed distribution, but the tail goes all the way up to age 50. So this applies. So in the United States, our background case is four cases per million, and we have 160. So it's four times 160. We should basically have 640 cases of myocarditis per year. That is a background rate. I've told you so far, our VAR system has 11,000 cases, 11,000. So we are far beyond the background rate. What we know is in an analysis by Avolio, so a very similar last name, that the spike protein itself is the injurious um, element of the vaccine. Uh, and the cell type that actually looks like it's the cell involved in myocarditis is called the pericyte, which is around capillaries in the heart and the cardiomyocytes. And then your question is, wait a minute, if the kids take some heart damage, and even if it's transitory, is there a long-term risk? Uh, in a paper by uh, Tishopi and colleagues in Circulation Research in 2019, looking at myocarditis before COVID, but this myocarditis 
in general that comes through uh, parvovirus, it comes through various forms of adenoviruses, etc. The rate of permanent damage and things going poorly over time in this group of people is about 13%. And that number, Brett, is high. I can tell you 13%. If that holds for vaccine-induced myocarditis, and I anticipate it will, I think that is an extraordinary number of young individuals that is going to have permanent heart damage. We're talking about the development of heart failure, the need for heart failure medications, risks for cardiac death and things we have to do about that, including implantable defibrillators, uh, some some children going all the way to heart transplantation. This, there shouldn't be a single case of excess case of myocarditis out there. Not, a, not one case is acceptable, let alone be sitting on 11,000 and now with school vaccine mandates for children, you can see that number is going to skyrocket. 11,000, which is again a VAERS number, which every analysis that has been done tells us that VAERS is dramatically underreported. It's a very conservative system. So um, this is an extraordinary harm that is being done. Am I right so far? Well, you, 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 this, we haven't talked about this, but um, I was on national TV in June when the FDA and CDC reviewed myocarditis, and they said two things that I think was completely incorrect from a public health perspective. And you know, I'm trained in public health. I'm a, uh, I'm a, uh, uh, at this point in time in my career, I have over 650 publications in the National Library of Medicine and PubMed. I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm an editor of a major cardiology journal, former editor of another journal. I'm, a, I'm the principal editor of my own textbook. I am in academic medicine right now, and anybody you're talking to COVID-19, I imagine I'm probably uh, at the top of the academic uh, pile right now of a scholarship. I can tell you those two statements by our public health officials who are junior to me in their scholarship and accomplishments, uh, both of those statements I think are reprehensible. They said, and reckless, they said that myocarditis is mild and they said it was rare. Well, it, it wasn't mild then because 90% of the kids are in the hospital by regulatory standards. Anything that causes hospitalization, as you know, is a serious adverse event. It's never classified as mild, never. And then they said it was rare because they took 200 cases and they divided by the universe of people who got the vaccine. Well, we can't do that in safety because we didn't assess everybody for myocarditis. So we don't know if it's rare. And when we see a signal like this in safety, uh, pharmacovigilance, we use the term tip of the iceberg. So I was on national TV saying, listen, it's not mild because the kids are being hospitalized. And two, it's not rare. It's the tip of the iceberg. And boy, was I right. Being at now 11,000 cases in VAERS, and you're right, it's underreported. Um, and interestingly, it's who reports it. The um, There is a paper uh, that's published in the American uh, College of Pediatrics that asked the question in 2016, who reports to VAERS? And you know who reports to VAERS? The answer was... Um, about uh, about 14% of the time, it's um, it's actually the patient or the patient's family that reports to VAERS. 86% of the time, it's another entity that actually really was concerned that the, the product, uh, in this case, the vaccine, caused the problems. That means doctors, nurses, people administered the vaccine, the pharmaceutical companies who received this, and they're concerned about their products. So I have to tell you, this VAERS data uh, is real. Uh, and, and I've heard people say that, oh, anybody can report things to VAERS. I filled out the VAERS sheets, Brett, and I'll tell you, every single page says warning. 
Um, this is uh, falsification is punishable by imprisonment or federal fines. I tell you right now, the VAR system, 11,000 cases, that's serious. And the number almost certainly is going to be much larger. If this under-reporting relationship exists, in fact, that number of five on mortality, it may be greater for myocarditis because if you look at the registrational trials in children, the one by uh, Frank and colleagues, for instance, in the adolescents, 40% of the kids who get the vaccines develop fever as high as 40 degrees. They have muscle aches, body aches. They feel very sick after shot number one and shot number two. That constitutional syndrome could actually mask some chest pain that would be missed myocarditis. So as I am as a clinician who's seen this, I can tell you right now, I am suspicious the rates of myocarditis are going to be astronomical. All right. So you have just described uh, a catastrophic picture that is itself the tip of a different iceberg because what people really need to think carefully about is we are mandating or we are considering mandating for children who have essentially no risk from COVID, but that's not even the full extent of it. A child who gets COVID has very little harm that comes to them, as far as we know, a healthy child, walks away with what, if a vaccine could accomplish it, would be considered miraculous, which is essentially perfect immunity to the disease going forward. And we would be vaccinating them to prevent them from catching the disease. That would prevent them from developing this robust, broad immunity to COVID until later when it does become a threat, when they're older and the disease is more dangerous to them, right? Um, and we would be doing this. And when you really push people and you say, why are we vaccinating children for a disease that does not threaten them? The best answer that comes back is terrible. The answer is that effectively, this is to control the pandemic. Now, we can argue all day about whether or not this actually does control the pandemic better than children contracting COVID, having very low symptoms and walking away with permanent immunity. But what we can't argue is that that rationale effectively borrows health from young people to protect the old and infirm. And so you mentioned the Nuremberg Code before. And unfortunately, I think we really need to think about what's going on in those terms. No healthy society takes health from young people in order to protect the old and infirm. That is not an acceptable ethical trade. And yet we are doing it without discussion, which suggests that something that effectively the bottom has dropped out of the bucket, that the commitments that we have to each other, the idea of medical ethics has all been subordinated to a reckless top-down campaign focused on a single remedy that we now know as amazing as it is at a technological level, is composed of unfortunate features and full of design failures. You mentioned the spike protein. That was a very poor choice of a protein to alert the immune system to the chemical nature of COVID because the spike protein is itself dangerous, right? Now I've gotten in trouble. I've been quote unquote fact checked for that being said on Dark Horse. But of course, this is what you're telling us that the spike protein is actually doing damage 
to the body. Sometimes that damages to the heart, a tissue that has a very low capacity for self-repair. And that we would do this to children for no benefit to them is simply unconscionable. Now, I've been fact-checked by, uh, by fact-checkers. They actually stopped. You know why, Brett? Because I quote the literature. I cite the literature. And I ask the fact-checkers to go ahead and review that paper and make that paper even more prominent uh, on the Internet. And they, and they obviously, they, they drop me like a, uh, like a hot potato because they know I'm, I'm dead on with respect to the citation. So I hope they actually pull a volio. They pull the finished paper. In fact, they should. They should be able to do this. And uh, we'll be laser focused. Let me just say a couple of things. You mentioned this term of uh, medical ethics. Nuremberg Code says under no conditions should anyone receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for having something injected into their body as we apply it to vaccines in the setting of research. And that's what actually happened in Nazi Germany with uh, the Nazi uh, research uh, program. Uh, and then the second one is the Declaration of Helsinki. There's six of these cornerstones of bioethics that our Office of Human Research Protections in Washington actually holds. The second one is the Declaration of Helsinki uh, that indicates that everyone should receive informed consent. And uh, recently I was on the Diane Andrews show in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and she reminded me of the Tuskegee program in Macon County, Georgia, and in, in Alabama, I'm sorry. And what was done there is roughly 600 African-American men were recruited into a study of syphilis. And they were told that the study was going to prevent syphilis. They weren't told whether or not they had it at baseline. They were given effectively placebos. And this program, Brett, went from 1932 to 1972. It turns out in the mid-1940s, penicillin became available. The, the investigators of the program didn't make penicillin available to those who had syphilis. They let the men give it to their wives and then give it to their children. And this program, Brett, who was it run by? It was run by the CDC. It was run by the Public Health Service and the CDC. Did you know that there were Senate hearings? There never were any apologies. There some people stepped down. It ultimately in 19, early 1990s, former President Clinton had to step up and formally apologize now to the spouses and the progeny of those in the Tuskegee experiment uh, and say, we're sorry for this and give reparations. The CDC and the FDA is running the U.S. Uh, COVID-19 vaccine program. I'm not seeing anybody interested in saying they're sorry. Um, I think this is going to be taken. This is just like Tuskegee over and over again. I think this is very similar to the Nazi uh, uh, doctor uh, uh, crimes. And all the same techniques are being used. Propaganda, false information given by those in position of authority, and then malfeasance, which is actually wrongdoing by those in position of authority. And you get signs and symptoms of this. You know, there's been a couple FDA officials they just can't stomach anymore and they've resigned. In fact, Dr. Gruber, who actually signed the biological licensing agreement to for Comirnaty BioNTech, uh, she resigned seven days after she signed that uh, biological licensing agreement uh, letter. As an example, one of her colleagues did as well. Francis Collins, uh, the head of the National Institute of Health, he's retiring. I'm telling you right now, this is the medical Super Bowl for the NIH, the FDA, and the CDC. There should be zero resignations. These people ought to be absolutely triumphant in their victory of a public health program, and yet they're heading for the exits. This really ought to tell you something about where we are going right now. You're right, the bioethical principles are off the wall. Historians will record. Do you know the World Health Organization recently said 
by assent, a child uh, showing up to school by assent is uh, actually agreeing to the COVID-19 vaccination. Uh, my child certainly isn't. I'll tell you that much. Um, yes, uh, you know, I've been wrestling with, um, with the Nazi parallel and the Tuskegee parallel myself. And I feel, uh, I think like many people do, an absolute obligation not to invoke those things unless it is absolutely warranted. But the problem is, it's not a perfect parallel, but it's certainly the closest thing that we've got, right? The vaccination of children under false pretenses is very Tuskegee-like. And this time, race is not the, uh, the issue. But nonetheless, I, I don't see how there is any ambiguity on this point at all. And what I don't understand is um, I don't think you need to be all that informed or all that smart to see the problem with vaccinating children who are not threatened by this disease. Right. It's not that complex. And once you find out that that's what we intend to do, it should open your eyes to all of the other things that are wrong with what we are doing. So, for example, the vaccine program is riding on the claim that we don't have alternatives. Now, at the beginning of COVID, we really didn't know what to do. But that's no longer the case. We have learned a tremendous amount about how to treat it and how not to treat it. And so let's say that the vaccines were off the table and you had, uh, let's say that the environment was hospitable to using every tool at your disposal. How empowered do you feel as a doctor to treat a vulnerable patient who shows up with a positive test but uh, is not yet very sick? Every doctor should feel fully enabled to treat this illness, just like a pneumococcal pneumonia, just like uh, influenza pneumonia. Come on, we do this as internists, as family doctors, as medical specialists. And I've done it from the very beginning. I testified under oath. I have never denied a high-risk patient early treatment for COVID-19 using my best medical judgment because we knew the Chinese were telling us right out of the gate that this could be fatal in some individuals. I can tell you as a doctor, I took an oath I took an oath to do the best I can. I would never let someone acquire a fatal illness and do nothing. I just never would do that. That's called failure to treat. That's called malpractice. And, um, and So I, I, I want to stop you there because I think people will not necessarily know what you're talking about. What you're talking about is that actually the quote-unquote standard of care involves essentially sending you home if you're not sick enough to require medical help. We do not treat those who have just tested positive because uh, it is not acknowledged that we have useful tools. Is that fair? It's, uh, it's a situation where we know that the illness takes two to four weeks to become fatal. We know this now, and we may not have known it in February of, of 2020, but we know it now. And so we also know with every infection when we start early, we have the best chances of quelling the infection before it becomes fulminant and ultimately fatal. Do you know for bacterial infections, we actually had tricks from the time the patient presents to the time the 
boost antimicrobial is administered. That's actually a quality metric. The same thing should exist for COVID-19. Now, the interesting thing about COVID-19 is not everybody needs treatment. We have estimates that roughly 25% of the population needs treatment for COVID-19. We know that from an Iranian study by Mokhtari and colleagues, over 30,000 individuals with COVID-19, we've looked at the Iranian program, which is a hydroxychloroquine-based program, is enormously successful. They can give relatively brief courses of hydroxychloroquine plus other drugs in combination uh, to individuals who are at high risk. Now, risk stratification is so sophisticated, Brenda, by this point in time, any listener can go to the Cleveland Clinic website, type in their age, their medical problems, and they can actually calculate their risk of hospitalization and death with COVID-19 at the time they're testing positive. This is so easily risk stratifiable. And so I've always said in the first paper I published on this, the American Journal of Medicine in 2020, uh, and then the follow-up in reviews in cardiovascular medicine in December of 2020, these are the most frequently downloaded and utilized papers in all of the treatment of COVID-19. They were the basis for the very first treatment protocol to Americans and to people worldwide that was supported by a physician organization that's chartered in every state in the United States, the Association of American Physician and Surgeons. You know, we've been ahead of this. We've been ahead of every other group on this using what's called sequence multidrug therapy provided to Americans either through their doctors, through referring doctors, or through telemedicine services. So getting back to the issue of a patient in front of me who's sick with COVID-19, the first step is risk stratification. If I have somebody who's clearly over age 50 with medical problems, the risk of hospitalization and death rises to greater than 1%. That's a threshold to start doing something. We take somebody, let's say over 65, with heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, obesity, that's common. Uh, We could end up with risks of 20 to 40% for hospitalization. That's clearly enough to do something on day one as opposed to day 14. So I testified actually in the U.S. Senate in November, and I did comment about what you said. The very first set of NIH guidelines that came out, and the NIH is not a guidelines organization. I want your listeners to know this. They are not in the guidelines business. They are not in the business of giving treatment recommendations, but they tried. And prior to that, the Infectious Disease Society of America had three or four versions of guidelines. Both the NIH and the IDSA focused on inpatients. It was clear their focus was on inpatients. They had no approach for outpatients. What the NIH said I thought was particularly uh, uh, impressive, and historians will write about this. They specifically said if a high-risk patient gets COVID-19, they go home, they do nothing, They literally wait until they can't take it anymore and they can't breathe anymore. They go to the hospital and you still do nothing, still do nothing until the point of requiring oxygenation. And at that point in time, then the first milligram of remdesivir can be given. I can tell you that is is the type of situation I can tell you as a senior doctor who's treated many patients with COVID-19 that I would take that guideline and tell them, listen, that is going to cause harm to the population. It is a harmful document. We'd be better off without it. We'd be better off without without other sources of guidance and just go with AAPS, use risk stratification and start treating patients and prevent the hospitalization and prevent death. I've always said this, there's only two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. It's clear. I think if people knew they could get COVID-19 but make it through at home, Uh, that home treatment would always win because of these principles. We shortened the infectivity period from 14 days down to four days, 14 to four days. 
and that we reduce the intensity and duration of symptoms. The drugs aren't perfect, but we need four to six drugs in combination. Single drugs don't work, by the way. We need four to six drugs in combination, just like with HIV, just like with uh, the uh, hepatitis, the other viral infections. And that by that mechanism, we allow the virus to terminate in the house and not let it spread elsewhere. If we let it brew in the house for two weeks and then there's a panic to the clinic or the hospital, we infect other care workers, family members, etc. So every hospitalization in the United States has actually been a super spreader event. Recently, Aaron Rodgers was criticized because he got COVID-19. Well, I, I mentioned, and I'm going to mention, I'm going to go on Joe Rogan shortly and basically recap this that Aaron Rodgers did the right thing. He did the exact same thing I did. I had COVID-19. What did I do? I got it home. I got involved in a multi-drug treatment protocol. I And I was in research, so I was doing swabs every day. Aaron probably wasn't, but I shortened my infectivity down to four days. I proved that. I did all my contact tracing. So did my wife. We didn't spread it to anyone, and we were done. And then on the backside of this, now we're naturally immune. Now Aaron Rodgers can return to the Packers, and he can never get COVID-19 again, and he can never spread it again. That's very different than taking a vaccine. If he would have taken a vaccine, he clearly could have gotten it anyway. And somebody who's vaccinated clearly can spread it to others. And our CDC director and all the data suggests that, in fact, that's the case. Okay. So the central thing for me, I've been trying to understand what I'm seeing and this terrible public health response to an admittedly bad but uh, manageable disease. And I can't escape the following thought. And you almost stated it right there. You said we would have been better off without the guidelines. Now, my sense is that you could have a good proper response, you could have an incompetent response, or you could have something else. And the problem is that so much of what I see, when I dig a little bit into the evidence, I find that our response is not only incompetent, but it is very often the inverse of what would be the responsible thing to do. So for example, not treating people until very late in the progress of COVID disease, that is the way to ensure that what treatment you offer is least effective, right? It's a terrible recommendation. It's the inverse of the, the right thing. The idea that vaccines are the way to control this disease, again, these vaccines are not capable. They are at best feeble. The effectiveness wanes very rapidly over time. They cause disease in their own right. These are not the right tools. We have other tools and we are not recommending their use. You mentioned uh, various drugs that work. Do you want to name a few that you think are useful here? Let me just comment on your your um, interpretation of uh, public health responses. Um, Scott Atlas's book is out and he's been on TV. I've uh, personally, you know, had dinner with him and we went over it. You know, he was on the inside. He actually met with the public health officials. He was at these meetings and I was shocked with what I heard. He said that our public health officials, the ones we see on TV uh, throughout the course of the pandemic, they showed up to meetings with no scientific data. They had not reviewed manuscripts. They were not prepared. Scott said he was the only person showing up with new studies interpreting what was going on. I was flabbergasted. I said, Scott, is it, is it true that it's actually incompetence that America is suffering basically gross incompetence by our public health officials? And he said, yes. He, th he thinks that is actually gross incompetence. Well, I have to say, I think you're both wrong. Um, I think this can't be explained by incompetence. Incompetence would give you something like a 
random set of recommendations, right? Perfect incompetence would give you a random set. Instead, what we have is closer to the inverse of the right recommendations, right? The failure to recommend vitamin D supplementation is glaring. The amount of COVID that could be prevented and controlled with vitamin D is large. The safety of vitamin D is clear. Um, and even if it didn't work, even if we were incorrect about this, the collateral benefits for supplementing vitamin D, especially during the winter, are clear enough on their own. So we're not doing that. Um, we now have randomized controlled trials, which we are told bizarrely are the only kind of evidence that is acceptable. We have evidence that fluvoxamine is uh, effective against COVID, and yet uh, I see no evidence of a rapid move to add that to the standard of care. It's almost as if something has focused on a single solution for reasons that aren't medical or epidemiological, and it is going to rewrite whatever evidence it runs into. It's going to dismiss and rationalize away every alternative to that one uh, prescribed remedy. And so, you know, I don't, I don't mean to contradict you. I, I just think you're being uh, more cautious than the evidence warrants here. We are, we are uh, looking at something beyond incompetence. Well, you know, I was giving, uh, and to be fair to Scott Atlas, um, I, I was basically giving you his interpretation. I was at a symposium in Columbus and somebody asked him that very question. They said, you know, is it really incompetence or is it the inverse? Is it something really worse than that? And his answer was he does think that those in positions of power in the public health do want the crisis to end. And they are doing, in a sense, they do have good intentions. And he did say that specifically. I was in the audience. I listened. And I imagine his book says the same thing. But he's very clear about the instances of incompetence and simply not following the data. But when you get to the inverse, what you're really getting to, right, you're getting very close to a, a an adjective which is nefarious, meaning it, are people actually intentionally trying to do harm? And the book to point to there, I wrote one of the introductions, is COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey by Peter Bregan. And I have to tell you, it, I think it's number one in a lot of the uh, medical book listings right now. It has a thousand citations of evidence. This is a factual book. of It's basically nonfiction, and it's laying out what almost certainly is according to Bregan nefarious intent. There is intent to make things worse. And you know, I gave my interpretation to Tucker Carlson earlier this year. I was on, I said, Tucker, listen, I'm just a doctor seeing this, but I think there is intentional suppression of early treatment. I think there is intentional um, uh, promotion of masking, lockdowns, isolation, fear, suffering, hospitalization and death in order to mass promote the vaccine. That was my interpretation now many months ago, and I gave Americans that interpretation on TV. So I am aligned with you. It's more than just innocent incompetence. Well, that, that, that there is an agenda. There is absolutely no doubt about it. There is a vaccine agenda that is being carried out. So I want to introduce, uh, I don't know what's going on, and I'm agnostic about the intent behind it. But I think there is a kind of middle ground explanation that fits the agnosticism. And that is, we have the something like the inverse of the policy that you would recommend if you were really trying to help patients and end the pandemic. That can't be explained by incompetence. It could be explained by a uh, public health response built around a remedy that does not update 
In other words, if you got really excited about these vaccines before you knew how feeble they were and how many design flaws they have within them, and you just never checked in with whether or not these were still the best treatment, you could end up uh, disrupting the recognition of alternative tools that work as a result of, uh, you know, absolutely unacceptable, indefensible commitment to a single remedy that frankly is making a, uh, you know, is part of a, a profit-making endeavor. So you could do that without the intent to make things worse. Now, I'm not saying there is no intent to make things worse. And I think you point to something else that we need to be thinking about, which is COVID, the disease and the pandemic is a real phenomenon. And then there is a question of the political apparatus and what use it's putting it to. And so the idea that, you know, masking is everywhere despite uh, quite ambiguous evidence about how effective it is, um, that lockdowns are also uh, likely not appropriate in this case, not effective, that if you were going to use quarantine, you could you could use a different strategy, that that might be the political apparatus riding on the reality of COVID and doing something, yes, I would argue quite nefarious, but that it is not medically nefarious. It is politically nefarious and masquerading as a medical policy. Um, and, I, you know, again, I'm not telling you that I think I know what's taking place here. I'm just telling you, I think we need to parse very carefully that um, we do have evidence this isn't incompetence. That may mean it's nefarious. It could be partially nefarious. It could be uh, somewhere in between, but that at the very least, people need to be aware that the thing that is telling them what is in their interests and what is in our collective interest is misleading them. And that can very clearly be seen in failure to recommend vitamin D to a population that is almost certainly uh, deficient. It can be seen in the recommendation of vaccination for children for whom it does not provide a medical benefit and uh, pretty clearly provides the opposite. Um, it can be seen in the uh, policy of sending people home until they're so sick uh, and have been delayed so long that they can't be effectively treated. All of these things are strong indicators that whatever authoritative voice that is, it has been captured or destroyed and that we must listen to people like you who have experience on the ground and say, look, this is how you treat COVID. This is what we see in patients. And, uh, you know, you can't listen to those authorities because that's not what they are. Well, it should be unsurprising that, um, you know, academic physicians who have experience treating COVID-19, uh, have robust publication track records in COVID-19, it should be unsurprising that they would have a superior position in terms of recommendations than a public health official. It's just what it is. I mean, public health officials uh, are not treating patients with COVID-19. Uh, they are not um, uh, really on the vanguard of uh, cutting edge science. I, I mean, I am, like many you've interviewed, I am in innumerable symposiums and involved in inter information interchange all over the world right now and our public health officials aren't americans know that because we've seen no window to the outside world and uh, to speak to your interpretation of political intent you know there must be some political intent with the public health response because it's so different in every country so if it was all about the medical problem, we would settle on some uniform standards. But, you know, in Sweden, where things have been wide open to begin with, 
and you go, I just got a message from Cyprus, the island of Cyprus now, where they are completely in total lockdown, masking 24 by 7, inside, outside, with severe penalties. One must get a text message approval to leave one's house in Cyprus. Wow. And they have hardly any COVID. I was on Chris Saucedo, a news show a week or two ago, and there was a report that in Taiwan, there's more vaccine deaths then there are COVID deaths. The same thing is true in Australia. So you know that, that somehow the agenda involves vaccines to the complete and total end. The vaccines will cause more deaths than COVID and the vaccines will be carried out to the complete end here where the vaccines in the end will become more of a problem than COVID. You can already see that in low prevalence countries. You can also see a very interesting trend emerging in the least vaccinated parts of the world there's the least threat of COVID, including uh, Central Africa, for instance, uh, for the vaccination rates are 6%, and they're basically breezing through COVID, whereas you get to places like Gibraltar, the UK, um, Iceland, uh, now, uh, 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 you know, now America and Canada are emerging. Wherever we are vaccinating more intensely, we have a much greater problem with COVID. Till to this day, I'm shocked as an American, we're at one-sixth of the U.S. population. We still have more cases and more COVID-19 deaths than any country in the world. And we have the top uh, medical system in the United States uniquely. You know, we have 5,600 hospitals, 2,200 acute care centers, 300 medical schools. Do you know that not a single major medical institution has their own unique research protocol? We are two years into this, and it's shocking that there's no Harvard treatment protocol for COVID-19. There's no Mayo Clinic treatment call or Duke treatment. They have their own individual protocols, which they actually uh, showcase for their research and innovation for every medical problem under the sun. Suddenly in COVID-19, our academic uh, intelligence is zero on COVID-19. I think it's shocking. Uh, I think it's absolutely shocking. It's people like me and Merrick and just a few independent leaders broke through to the world on how to treat COVID-19 and our major medical schools have fallen flat. Right. So the normal process in which there would be protocols coming out of the top medical schools is nowhere in evidence. And somehow, bizarrely, even though it is widely understood that we have a regulatory capture problem involving pharma, the assumption of most people seems to be that there's not even an average level of pharma corruption with respect to COVID, but that the level of corruption is actually zero. I don't understand why anyone would assume that what they were seeing is a pure public health response, rather than at least leaving open the possibility that some of the nonsense that we're seeing and some of the paradoxes that we're being uh, told to accept uh, are the result of, of corruption that we know exists on any other you know, in any other year. And well, well just to answer that, you know, it may be systemic. And so I think a lot of the rooting of this is going to be looking at the federal payments that have come into medical centers, that have come into medical practices from the federal government through a variety of programs, in a sense, COVID relief funding uh, that uh, could be auditable with respect to the FAQs and potentially the instructions of use for the funds, which involve you know, supportment, support of the federal efforts, support of the vaccine program, support of the narrative, if you will, 
on treatment of COVID-19. So it may be that the medical schools actually would want to try an innovative protocol, but they felt that the federal funding may be threatened if they did so, that they, in fact, with an and they all had somehow paid all back to the, 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 the federal fund. There are so many bright places to Right, that's probably enough of that. We're up to 45 minutes, and uh, I was only going to play 20 minutes of it, but uh, it's very, it's a very good conversation. I would highly recommend the Dark Horse podcast to anybody and everybody that I speak to. Um, but that's enough from me. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I'll see you again soon.